Hello and welcome to episode number seven of Earth Repair Radio. One in four farmers on our planet are Indian. Do you have over 400 million farmers in India? Outsiders come in with all these good intentions, you know, oh, I'm here to help you and all this stuff. But with little awareness of the subtleties and the multi-layered effects an outsider can have. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today our guest is Rico Zook. Rico is a permaculture designer, consultant, and educator. He works with private individuals, farmers, villagers, and local organizations to create environmentally and culturally appropriate life systems in India, Cambodia, northern New Mexico, and places in between. Rico also works to assist local and indigenous cultures to preserve traditional knowledge and technologies while adapting to and becoming active members of our rapidly globalizing world. Rico is an old friend of mine, and today we're primarily going to talk about his work in India over the last 14 years. So without further ado, here's Rico Zook. So Rico, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's a bit cold here in Taos, but I'm happy. It's a beautiful day, so I'm doing good. Nice. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me here. It's been really great. We've been friends for probably like 12 years or so, and so um, it's really great catching up with you as always. Thank you. And I think it's a bit more like 15 there, 15 or 16 there, buddy. Yeah, I was thinking about the uh, the Grow Here Now convergence in at the Lama Foundation is where we met. I thought that was maybe yes. 2004. Okay. Yeah. I can go with that. Yeah. Good. So um, I'm really happy to talk to you today. And, you know, you are the itinerant permaculture, the traveling permaculture teacher, and you've <laughs> been on the road in mostly in Southeast Asia for, what, 15 years? A long time. 14, yeah. 14 yeah, years. Since we met. Yeah. Well, let's start by, uh, why don't you tell me about your work abroad? What do you do and how much time have you spent traveling in India, Cambodia, Vietnam, other places that you've been doing uh, permaculture work? Okay. Um, well, I started the year we met um, that summer, that fall in 04. And I went to India as the first place. And uh, so I've been doing it approximately 14 years. Um, and the way I describe my work, basically permaculture is the toolbox or the tool bag I carry with me. And I, I work, um, I've been very grassroots mostly very much built my own sort of career. I'm independent, as you know, with my itinerant work at the moment. Um, and I work mostly in three general categories, you could say education, uh, which has some variations on that. Um, I do project work uh, mostly with NGOs, uh, private clients, although now I, I have a, I mean NGOs, uh, nonprofits, but I do uh, do some project work with private clients. That's starting to develop. And then I also do private clients, which are more design work or consultation, not so much project development, but more of just either a design for a, farm or a homestead or even a community, or it's a consultation on something that's already happening. So those are the three areas. And in education, I've done a lot of education with uh, farmer trainings, villager trainings, training the trainers with staff, you know, training um, nonprofit NGO workers who will then go out and work with different communities um, like that. Um, I also do a lot of open trainings, you know, just the classic PDC courses or advanced courses now, I'm starting to do teacher trainings. PDC, uh, that's the permaculture design course. Thank you, yes. Yeah. And then the TT, which is the teacher training. And so I've been doing a lot of um, open courses recently. It sort of fluctuates from year to year. And this past year, it's been very strong in the educational component. Although now I'm still doing that, and I have a schedule, pretty full schedule coming up in India this coming year. Um, but I'm also hoping to get more project work going again, get back into the project and design stuff, which is happening. 
Yeah. So what's your, what's your, you know, if you're going to take an average of your last 14 years, how much time have you spent in different places, would you say? Well, I'm out of the States or I'm on, well, I'm on the road basically 12 months of the year. Um, I'm currently in Taos because I used to live here and I had a gap. So I'm actually here for two months, but it's rare that I'm in one spot for longer than three weeks. You know, a design course the PDC is typically 14 days. I prefer to do mine about 16, 17 days, a few days before, a few days after. So three weeks is a long time for me to be in one spot these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, last year and this year, um, coming year, I've been mostly in India. In the past, it had been maybe like, oh, four, five months India, you know, maybe six, maybe in two parts. A, uh, Southeast Asia, Cambodia mostly, some Thai, Lao, um, Indonesia. I have not been to Vietnam yet. Um, okay. That's about two to three months of the year, although this past year I wasn't there. But I just picked up a new client in the States, but he lives in Thailand. So he's talking about some work there for me come in the coming year. What drew you to uh, spending so much time? In, I mean, India was really your initial draw to go and start teaching internationally. And it sounds like even when you're within India, you're not really in any one place for more than just a few weeks. So you're really traveling. It's a a huge country. And we're going to talk more about India later with uh, the upcoming International Permaculture Conference uh, in India. What is it that drew you to India and to to doing your permaculture work there? Um, My joke, depending who I'm talking to, is uh, my my response is that, well, I wasn't thinking. (laughs) You know, that was sort of my response. Anybody who's been to India, it's sort of a love-stress relationship with India. You know, India is not – it's a beautiful place, amazing place, but it's not an easy place in many ways. Um, so the reason I started in India was more um, – because it's sort of three. One is that, um, you know, interesting place. A lot of my friends are gone, a lot of interest in it, just curiosity and such. Um, they have a fair amount of English there because of the British colonialization and such. So English is not as um, limited as it is in other places, especially mm-hmm. other places in Asia. So it, I felt, you know, for a person who does not have any foreign language skill, um, India was good because of that potential English. And all my buddies, um, Many of my friends had been there, so I had major resources for what do I do, where should I go, connections. I also had a friend who's a permaculture guy whose wife was working for a large NGO in India. So I actually had someone there who who actually um, helped me out in terms of getting going with work and visiting. So I had an American friend there. What, what drew that, you to want to leave and what drew you to want to go and teach in another country across the world like what, um, what what was this you know you, you obviously had some real inspiration around this and you know what was that about well ever since i've been a young man i've always wanted to work internationally you know not just travel first travel is my i grew up traveling the states with my parents we had a home but every summer my father was a teacher so he had summers off mostly so we'd often go on vacations, and he loved to camp. And so I got the travel bug from the parents because we—I've been in every state. By the time I was in my twenties, I'd been in every state in this in the U.S. and such. So that bug was there. I just loved to travel. And then I've always thought about working—you know, travel and work—as a way to travel. So I was up at the Llama Foundation where we met, you know, here in Taos, New Mexico, and. Basically, I went through a hard time, you know, had an emotional sort of situation. And it was one of those times when it's like, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? What's it all about this stuff? And I was in my mid 40s at the time. And so out of that, I sort of have having navigated a few sort of emotional questioning times in my life. um, I used that opportunity to sort of that energy to push myself to actually go international. It was sort of, that was the motivation was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm in my middle forties. I have the skill set now, uh, because I had learned permaculture by that point. Um, you know, and had been doing it up at the foundation for about 10 years. Um, so 
I just said, then now's the time, you know, that was sort of the motivation. And because it was something I've always wanted to do since I've been a young man. And that it was just that point in time, I realized either I do it now or I'm not going to do it. So I did it. And now it's been almost 15 years. Yeah. And, um, what do you, (laughs) yeah. What do you feel? Oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I, I know it's, I must be tiring, you know, yeah. traveling. I mean, continually, like you said, like India is not an easy place um, to, uh, you know, continually move through. What is it that you feel as a traveling teacher? What do you feel you have to teach as someone who's an outsider coming from outside a culture in? And it's not just, and, and there's uh-huh. India, we could say India in a broad sense, but I know that you teach in Darjeeling. I know you teach in, in different locations. And I know even within yeah. India, there's this great diversity of cultures, yeah. Um, yeah. So w- what is it you feel like you have to bring as an outsider? Um, it's interesting. And, and a part of that is, is the awareness that what I have to offer changes from place to place, because it depends on what each place or culture needs. You know, sometimes there's cultural needs, sometimes there's land-based needs, you know? Um, so what I have to offer varies from culture to culture. So part of my job is true if I'm coming into a place, either an NGO is bringing me in or sometimes private clients. In India, there's a very giving nature. So often I'll have a client who hires me for their farm, but they also want to do something for the local villagers and things like that. So um, it's more part of the assessment process is understanding what do I have to offer these people, you know? And so it's on multiple levels and it's, it's a dance. It's sort of this, um, you know, Joel Glansberg, a good shout out to good first generation permaculture person. Um, he was talking about dynamic tension to me once a long time ago and nature is based upon cooperation. You know, just to put this out to people, you hear about, you know, survival of the fittest and nature tooth and claw, but, um, in his book, descent, of man, I think it is, or origin of species, excuse me, origins of species, the one where he, where Darwin wrote about survival of the fittest. In that book, he mentioned survival of the fittest. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going on a sidetrack here, but it's important that he mentioned survival of the fittest um, three or four times, that phrase. He mentions the word love 95 times huh. in that And that book is a lot more about collaboration and how nature is actually very much as in permaculture we know is a very much about collaboration and community um so i'm sorry about that aside no no i like uh, it yeah no it's very critical to understand and you can get into the idea of why is survival of the fittest promoted within our culture as a darwin survival of fittest you have to also understand couple that with capitalism and then survival of the fittest coupled with capitalism gives a very good understanding of the framework in which the word were sort of indoctrinated into. Right. Um, so, so there's a lot of, you could take that where you want to in terms of why survive, you know, that idea why it's being promoted by the dominant paradigm in relationship to capitalism. I think you can see how the two fit together. Um, when in actuality it's uh, nature is about cooperation and love. However, getting back to Joel and this idea of dynamic tension is and that's sort of relating back to how my assessment and looking and working with these cultures that are different from myself, uh, from where I come from, is that nature. There's also this idea, nature of, of dynamic tension, sort of like the egg. The idea of an egg um, metaphysically is like resistance as an egg is a esoteric saying. And the idea is the egg has to contain life, so it has to protect that life and hold it, um, so it has to be strong in that way. But if it's too strong, then the life can't get out of it. It can't break out and and sort of grow. So there's this idea of dynamic tension where you have to have enough but not too much. And in my work, there's sort of this idea of of there's there's already a lot there. There's already in many of these cultures things that are great, things that are good. And I'm not coming in as this idea of I'm the savior. Here's let me tell you what's how doing it, blah, blah, blah. It's more of of that's where I'm getting into this dynamic tension. It's more of this idea that that there's a lot that's already functional there potentially, especially if there if the traditions are intact. If the things, you know, 
if especially in India with the Green Revolution, you'll have a lot of cultures that completely lost or have are pretty eroded from there, like what they were doing a hundred years ago, because they've been shifted into this modern paradigm by progress, by development, by all these other, you know, green revolutions. Yeah, if so, anybody doesn't know, the green revolution was basically when industrial agriculture came and replaced traditional agriculture, industrial agriculture with pesticides and synthetic fertilizers and right. uh, mechanized uh, equipment. And so yeah. India, there was a huge yeah. transition of their agriculture from more uh, small-scale traditional methods to industrial agriculture. Well, one of the – and that – the history lesson, that was back in the 60s. That's when the Green Revolution was really big, was when it was pushed. Um, and it didn't happen all over. It was more in selected locations like Punjab in India in particular, up in Punjab – and some other areas where they were able to instill this sort of monocropped industrial based, you know, factory model of, of, of agriculture. Um, many, the thing about India is that the largest, the average farm size in India, when you do the whole numbers is about, uh, one point something acres. And in many places, the average farm size is below an acre. Wow. Um, so the thing about India is you do have things in areas where you have, uh, highly advanced agriculture in term advanced as in as in industrial not necessarily as in smart right um, you know not as advanced as, as as cool and groovy but advanced as in industrialized um that let's see where was i going with that um oh you you also have so that's you also have many parts of india where traditional practices are still there and another figure to put out to the people out there to understand is that when you look at the planet, the whole globe, that one in four farmers on our planet are Indian. Okay? So it, it's a mass, that's a, a staggering figure to me is that one in four farmers on our planet hmm. live in India, wow. farm in India, right? Hmm. Uh, 60% of the Indian population, which is 1.2 billion people, okay? So we're talking about one-sixth one of the human population. 60% yeah. of those people in India rely on agriculture for their income. Hmm. Now, of that, 40 to 45% are farmers directly, where the other 15% are in, you know, laborers or processing or something else like that. Yeah. So, so you have a huge, you have over 400 million farmers in India. Yeah. So, so the thing to understand is that you do have highly industrialized, and that's, again, we're talking different cultures, different climates. You know, they go from the Himalayas, you know, where we're up into the Arctic in the Himalayas, and you go up to Kashmir, and you go into things like you'd see here, any place in the cold climates, all the way down to Rajasthan, which is the deserts, all the way down to Kerala, where you have the hot, almost wet tropics. Hmm. White. It still has some cyclones, but, I mean, seasonal fluctuations. So you have hugely diverse cultures, hugely diverse landscape. So in the sense of, like, what do I have to offer them? I have, again, it varies from place to place. I My process is to go into there and see what are they actually doing. Identify the great things. And I just immediately start telling them how great they're doing with their great things, you know, and then um, and and reinforce good practices, you know, just to say, hey, that's so great that you're doing that. Oh, that's amazing. You know, and then identify one from them. They often can tell me like we have a problem with this bug or we this problem with this market, you know, in terms of cost and things in terms of what they're getting for their crop. And then I might see other things that I point out to them. And then we'll take that. And from there, I can work with them in terms of physical systems. Um, I, the other thing that I think really, I mean, it's like if you know permaculture, it's multi-layered. It's not a simple thing like, oh, let's go and do this. Bam. We have to work. The more competent you are in permaculture, the more skillful you are in permaculture, you will have to be working on multiple layers at the same time. You know, social, economic, cultural, physical landscapes. You know, yeah. you know, Andy, how it yeah. is. So a lot of times what I have to offer them is 
simply letting them know that what they do is important, that that their traditional practices are important, that that they are not poor, because many times what happens is that, you know, outsiders come in with all these good intentions, you know, oh, I'm here to help you and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But but with little awareness of the subtleties and the multi-layered effects an outsider can have. And it's, um, there's Alexander, there's a, nor, sorry, I can't, Ladakh. And she wrote a book called Ancient Futures, and she's very well-known, classic lady. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. She's a linguist, I think, or some cultural anthropologist type. And when Ladakh, which is near Kashmir, up in the northwest, northeast, northwest of India, it opened up very Tibetan-based culture in that part. It opened up, and she went in right away, learned the culture, learned the language, lived with them, and she wrote this great book about the impacts of change on that culture that is really informative about the general process that happens through this. Her, her name is Helena Norberg-Hodge. Thank you. You're welcome. Just exactly. Look it <laughs> yeah. And the thing that often happens is that when she arrived, they were like, we live in paradise. We have a good culture. They were really happy. They were content. They felt good about themselves. They felt good about their culture. And then within amazingly five to 10 years. And this was a restricted area. That's the thing was that India had closed it down because of India, China conflict. Won't go into that history lesson, but India and China have this long history of conflict recently. And so that area had been closed down and isolated because of its proximity to Tibet, China. And um, in the sixties, they decided to open up. So it was sort of this model in that sense of a very protected culture in the sense of no no outside influence or minimal then opened up and within a few short periods you know tour groups and all this stuff coming and it was very informative in the sense that after about you know five years or something years later she was talking about how the youth felt like they were backwards that they were poor that they were stupid and all this stuff just because all these affluent foreigners came in wearing you know brand name t-shirts, flashing electronics, and all this stuff. Mm. So a lot of my work with the cultures is just to let them know that their culture has value, that as an outsider, I put value in their culture, so why don't they? And that often when I come in, I've had this happen before, where you know I'm pulled up on a stage and say, say something to the community, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I do is when I use humor a lot, not at their expense, but humor at my expense and uh, to break the tension because everyone, you know, it's a setup. I go in there and like it's India. So it's, it's this, again, dynamic tension. It's just just like these conflicting things. Here's a white guy going into post-colonial, you know, who's the expert by the way, which I hate that word. No, I I refuse to be called an expert. Um, and it's just a setup, you know, that you go in there and here's another white guy standing up in front of you telling you how things should be. So there's this, I think, I don't know for sure, but in, and it varies from place to place, a residual sort of like, oh, another expert, another white guy, you know, mm. another, you know, there's these post-colonial sort of things. At the same time, in sort of dynamic tension to it, there's this all like, oh, here's the expert. They can solve our problem for us. Mm. Oh, let's, you know, you tell us what's wrong, you know? And, of course, that's setting me up for failure or, you know, setting me up. But one of the things I immediately do with this situation, if I'm talking to them, is like, listen, guys, this is ridiculous. I, you know, I basically hand it right back to them and say, you know, you folks are the ones who who, who are the best positioned to solve your problems. So, you know, I'm not from your culture. I have not grown up in this place. I do not know the plants like you know. I do not know your culture like you know. You people are smart enough to figure this. I am here to provide you my basic approach and my belief is that the things I can offer them is information. You know, like here's a you know gray water mulch pit. Here's okay. this idea. Here's that idea. You know, I can offer them information and then I can assist them with access. Okay. You know, how do they access resources? You know, I'm not there to make their decision for them. I'm not there to tell them do this, do that. I'm there to give them resources 
and to help them understand to make the choices they want for their culture, for their family, for their community that best fits them. And there is a philosophy, there's sort of two sort of philosophies in the NGO world, nonprofit world. One is basically, you know, here, we're here to fix it for you. You know, the Gates Foundation, the whoever else has come in and solve you. Oh, you poor people. You know, you can tell I'm a little biased against that approach. (laughs) No, you know, and that whole sort of like big brother, we're here to save you, charity. And I don't like charity. I mean, if someone's sick, someone's dying, you help them, they're hungry, give them food. That's fine. But I'm not there to give people stuff. I'm there to to help people understand that they are in control of their life and here's the tools and to give them, you know, to help them increase their understanding both of the situation and of the opportunities and the resources so that they can make the best choices. And I am biased. I want them to be organic. I want them to manage their water good. And I want them to like be careful of TV. But it's not my choice. It's their choice. Hmm. So I'm sorry, I got on my little rant there. Yeah, that's but, good. Yeah. But so so in the NGO world, there's often this one's like, we're here to give you, help you, you know, we're whatever, this big brother, big sister type thing. And there's another approach, which is more of my philosophy and a growing number, I'm happy to say, but growing number of other organizations and people where you empower the person or the community closest to the situation to make the choices and to actually do the work because they're the people closest to the situation have the most knowledge, the most understandings, and they're the best ones to make the decisions yeah. because they're most intimate with that particular situation. Now, can you, can you provide an example that you've witnessed that illustrates that? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of times and with designing and working with them, often you engage the community in the process. Um, it's not overseas. It's here in, in Taos, New Mexico at the Hanuman Temple here, which is a Hindu temple, by the way, um, that I've been, you know, I used to live here. So I've been associated, you know, in and out of the temple for the past 20 plus years, know everybody. And when they wanted to do um, um, a farm, a five acre urban permaculture farm, they asked me to help them. And so I've been sort of stewarding them. So I mean, I'm using this example just because I'm here right now sitting in the ashram office talking to you for this interview. Um, And so my basic approach with them was to build the team of stakeholders that's involved, board of directors, uh, ashram personnel, and people working. And then we came up the design ourselves. The process was a collaboration between all the parties to come up with the design. And then I come here and I keep sort of working with them but more on a um, conceptual level and letting them make that. Um, in terms of other places, in Darjeeling, outside of that, we're working, well, we're, I, there's an NGO in Darjeeling called Prerna, P-R-E-R-N-A. Um, and as an individual, I partner with NGOs. I'm considered a resource person is the phrase that they used. And so I've been working with this NGO in Darjeeling for about 14 years directly. I'm adopted into one of the families there, you know, um, literally. I mean, not legally, but um, it means something over in India when you say that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So I've been, so with them, that's, so when I say we, I'm referring to Prerna because they're my like family and close friends over there. So we've been working with this community. Prerna has been working with them for 30-plus years uh, I started working with them about 10 years ago, 13, uh, 12 years ago. And with them, it's very much a guidance process. Uh, it's an amazing place. Uh, Mineral Springs, it's referred to, Dubai Pani. And um, people have maybe even drunk their tea because it's, um, it's thousands of acres of uh, food forest, hmm. of a forest garden. I'm not fond of food forest. I prefer forest garden. Um yeah, and it naturally, it sort of naturally evolved without the idea of permaculture or anything. It just sort of happened. I won't go into it. It's a bit of a story about how how this 14 villages, uh, 460 farms, all organic, all under one certificate. So that means internal control is, is maximum because one farmer breaks the rules, everybody loses the certification. Hmm. So 
So believe me, internal control is 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 high because um, you know they get good income from the organics. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's an old tea estate that that has um, was abandoned and then slowly over time converted into this amazing forest garden. Hmm. Um, and when you're in India, I'm hoping you get up there to see it, but you might not. Um, so yeah, with that community. We uh, have been slowly introducing various aspects because they had a great land base already. They were doing amazing stuff. They're already organic. And so a lot of it has been more of a subtle with Prerna working on things like women's empowerment um, with um, appropriate tech, you know, adding different layers like that. So um, in doing this, we sort of identify progressive farmers. The basic strategy is when I go in and I do a farmer training with with a group and I'm working with the NGO and then I'm training um, if it's farmers directly, you know, and often then it's through translation. Um, I'll ask and we'll visit farms and we'll sort of, when you're teaching, you'll see certain students who are much more engaged than other students. You know, students are doing all these notes students that are asking lots of questions, um, you know, students who are on time, you know, and, and within, if I have a group of 20 farmers, within that 20 farmers, there'll be one or two farmers that are what might be called progressive. They experiment, they're trying out new things, they're doing this or that. So when I do a farmer training, I look for those one or two innovators, those, those people who are, who are like curious and trying new things. Mm. And I'll teach everybody and I'll push everybody. But once the course is over and I'll talk to the NGO, I'll say, those are the people you focus on. Focus on that farmer and that farmer. You know, do the things, but put your energy into those two farmers. And I'll often visit their farm because then the other farmers will be like, oh, okay, that's great. That's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when you have a farmer who has, you know, two acres or an acre and a half, and if their crop fails, they go hungry for the winter. You know, they don't have a lot of leeway. They don't have a lot of leeway. It's like, oh, okay, let's plant something different. Let's not do this year. Let's do that. Because if they if they don't get a crop, they're screwed, yeah. you know? So it's very hard to get farmers who are very, you know, you know, year to year, they're wondering if they're going to survive, hmm. to ask them to do all these innovative things right. for them, what would be considered innovative. So you look to these farmers that are progressive, that are trying new things and they do the work and all these other farmers are watching believe me you go into a community every farmer knows what you know what the other farmers are doing and they know this guy is trying all this other stuff and so they're watching him mm -hmm. right? and then that those progressive farmers become the leaders of change in their community and that's sort of like that's that leverage point. Remember, small change for great effect. Find the leverage points hmm. in terms of permaculture. And a lot of times when I'm going there, you know, I could try to shove all this stuff through. But by identifying those key people, they become your leverage points. By focusing your energy, you know, help everybody, make available to everybody. But take that extra time and make sure those innovative farmers get what they need and visit them and give them a little. And my visiting their farm sort of elevates that farmer's status in the community because mm -hmm. I'm an outsider and I'm a teacher and I'm this person, you know, that they've built up. So by my sort of recognizing that progressive farmer and putting a little extra, that farmer gets a little extra status in the, in the community. And then if that farmer puts in this gray water system and all of a sudden now they're getting all this great fruit and all this stuff with, and, and their water use is going down because now they're reusing water all the other farmers are seeing this and then they'll start doing it because this other farmer has done it and they see it's working. Right. So that's yeah. sort of, and I've seen that happen in yeah. terms of leverage points and that empower people closest to the situation, you know, find the farmer that's progressive, that's interested in doing stuff and then start, you know, work with everybody, but in particular, you know, well, feed yeah. Now at this point, I mean, being that you've been going back and forth to India for 14 years, do you yes. have some farmers that were those those special innovative farmers that you are now still in touch with and have been able to see their progress and, and how they have maybe influenced their community with um, better practices? To a limited degree, yes. Part of my 
limitation and something I'm not happy about, you know, I've struggled with it, is often I'll do a farmer training and I won't see those farmers again a second time because I'm brought in as a resource person. Hmm. You know, there are times I've seen farmers for like three years in a row and then that's it. You know, the, I, the, the, I'm, my work with that NGO's done, the funding for the project's gone, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I don't have free time or the money to, you know, and I've trained, I don't know how many farmer trainings I've done, you know, 30, 40, you know, and there's anywhere from 15 to 30 in a group, you know, yeah. it's just, yeah, so there are a few, but mostly in these places like Prerna at Mineral Springs where I go down there and I go to this village, I've been going there 12 years, it's like I'm a member of the community, almost, mm-hmm. You know, so with those farmers, yeah, I've definitely seen some of that happen. But my limitation is because I am so much every place and I always go new places that, yeah, it's limited, but I've seen it. Yeah. What are your what are some of your favorite places in India? You talked about this tea farm in Darjeeling. um, Well, okay, so. That is, and like I have my joke is, if God forced me, if God said Do you have to live in India, I'd live in Darjeeling. Hmm. You know, so that's my favorite. Pl- you know, in terms of, and it's hard to say favorite place. It's like, what's your favorite food? It's like, well, I love lots of food. Right. You know, so there's a lot of. Beautiful what are some highlights? Out. Yeah, highlights. So definitely Darjeeling, and if if this place, Mineral Springs, um, if people write to you, you can connect them to me. It's not a tourist place. It's very much. Um, yeah, that's my, it's, it's, I love Mineral Springs. It's just an amazing, amazing place. Sweet community, beautiful land, thousands of acres of forest garden. I mean, and yeah, um, other places, God, there's a lot. I love Humpy. Humpy's an amazing place. Uh, it's spelled Hampi, H-A-M-P-I. It's down in Karnataka. Um, hopefully when you come over, we're going to go there. Um, I love Humpy. And now you did a big, you did a big uh, wetlands restoration project down there. Two, two of them. And I wouldn't necessarily say big in terms of like thousands of acres or something. The 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 first one I did the wetland and both of them they're more like pond restorations in the sense that then have wetland effects going outwards, but it's basically making you know impoundments for which should happen anyway, but because of the depletion had stopped you know, had dried up. And so one was for a private client. Um, the wetland was the whole area affected by it in terms of the general spot was maybe a couple acres, two, three acres, but it had, you know, huge impacts all around. They were talking about all the wildlife it attracted. Amazing. It made me cry when I saw it two years later. It's Mm. one of those, one of those ones where you just feel happy. That's like, Oh, I've done something good in my life. Um, and then the other one was actually much, much more remote for one was for a private client who loves wildlife and, you know, um, just buys large tracts of land for the wildlife. And so he hired me to do the restoration. And then the other one was for a wildlife organization that he's associated that he supports. And they brought me in to do another one. So, yeah, I mean, now you've done I mean, that's one case where you actually did do a uh installation work yeah what do you feel i mean i know know you've done a lot of installation work here in the states what do you feel is the difference uh doing a a big installation project in india for example versus uh new mexico (laughs) oh boy howdy oh boy howdy um labor basically labor um both in good and bad ways I'll, I'll give it that way. Um, there's actually, you know, if you search online, you'll find a bunch of different sort of interviews with me from different people. And someone once asked me about machines versus people. And so in India, you have a huge labor force. And, and we actually dug all these things by hand. They, they offered to bring in a machine. But I was like, no, it's just for fear of breaking through. You know, like with a machine, you can't, you know, we were working our way down through layers of clay, sand, clay, sand. And uh, I didn't want to break through the last layer of clay, so we did it by hand. But you can do that in India, you know, for the same price, you know. It's hmm. like you can hire, you know, 50 people and pay the same amount for hiring one, one you know, they call them JCBs over there, backhoe, big backhoe. Um, and I'd rather 
pay 50 people to do the work than pay one wealthy guy with a tractor to, to do the work. But um, labor is, is a huge issue in India. Partly um, uh, farm labor is becoming really hard for many, many farmers. I mean, they have their little farms, but other people have larger farms, and there's a big movement in India. So there's 400 plus 450 million farmers, but also in India, there's a 400 million middle class or up, hmm. right? And everyone thinks of India as poor. And, you know, when you talk, if you say 400 million up middle class and up, that's a huge number, bigger than the population of the United yeah, States. Right. You know, you are also talking about 800 million people that are below middle class. So, hmm. you know, even though you have a huge middle class, you still have a massive, you know, poor class. However, with that said, you have a lot of people, and middle class in India means you have a car, you can afford a driver, you afford, you could have live-in servants, wow. you could have a cook, you could have a gardener. You know, middle class in India is very different from middle class in the United States or Europe or something like that because of the disparity between middle class and poor is huge. Hmm. So where I think the disparity between middle class and poor here is less. Um, but anyway... So you have 400 million people. A lot of those folks are buying land and going back or the, you know, every course, open course I teach, I usually have an IT person or two who are giving that up and going back to the family farm or something. So you have a lot of farmers who, who hire labor and almost every place I go in India, it's very hard to hire labor because the price is going up, which is fair enough. You want people to be able, especially farm labor, to make a living. But then because of the market prices, it's hard for the farmers to afford it. So um, the big difference between India and and working in New Mexico is work ethic hmm. on one level. And I'm, I'm sad to say that and actually – but that's the truth of it from my experience and from what Indians have told me, hmm. uh, their experience. Yeah, well, it yeah. seems like if you can hire 50 people for the price of renting a backhoe that they're certainly not getting paid a whole lot. Right. And when I said that, I just sort of threw that number out. I don't know the prices. So so don't quote me on that. Right. Um, but but it is a difference. And I didn't ask the difference when with my buddy. He was just he's, he's a wealthy man. So um, he wasn't he's he's wanted to do it right. And so uh, when I said hand labor, he was like and he was very happy about that. When I explained why he was like, yeah. So. Um, yeah. And in many ways. I, I much prefer hand labor when you have it because it's it it puts employment into people's hands and I'm all about employment you know I'm all about people earning um, dignified income you mm -hmm. know I, I feel strongly for that yeah so, yeah wh where do you see things going over there I mean you know it's it's really mind blowing the numbers that you're talking about are really mind blowing thinking about four hundred million middle-class people and then 800 million people below that level of, yeah. of, you know, economic, um, that economic level. And, yeah. um, you know, we've got, we've got the international permaculture conference coming up and we've got, you know, the whole transition from the sixties, the green revolution, like wh where yeah. do you, where do you see things going? Is there, is there a positive direction that's, that you can track? Um, that is the question of the decade of the century, maybe, you know, where are things going? And that's true in India as much as any place else. Um, definitely in the last 14 years of me being in India, the awareness of the environmental awareness and the just awareness of human impacts has grown. And the concern for that, when I started 14, I'm not the first permaculture guy in India, you know, that came 85 or 87, Bill did it. And there's other names like Rosemary's been there and um, John Buttons and other people have been there prior to me. Um, and now talking about really, Bill Mollison and Rosemary Morrow, by the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then John Buttons is another guy who's been around there for a while in the early days. There is some early day permaculture and oh, yeah. So um, there is definitely a growing awareness and of that. When I first arrived there, my permaculture course might have been the only permaculture course in India for that year, you know, hmm. that uh, maybe I taught two or three courses a year in the very first few years. And they're mostly private. 
to NGO staff and, and community and um, yeah. Um, although, no, there were some open ones, too. But mine might have been the only one, right, that in there. And if maybe I saw one other one or something, you know, 14, 13, 12 years ago. Now I myself am doing, I think, five, four or five this coming year in India, PDCs. And there are at least probably going to be, ten, you know, five to ten more other ones. And there's more sites. So so definitely the awareness is growing. Um, however, it's just like any place else. Um, in India, Modi um, is the president. He came in, uh, excuse me, prime minister. And he's very conservative. You know how the swing to the right, the, the um, fortunately it didn't happen in France, but... Um, you know, with our election and with other elections, there's been noting how much there's been a strong swing to the right. And mm-hmm. Modi is very much in that mode. And he did the demonetization thing, trying to push towards a cashless society. He's very much in favor of the big transnationals and things like that. Um, you know, when you have one sixth the human population, you know, Walmart has been trying to get into India for decades and such. And so you have huge pressures from from um, these colonizers. And when I teach, I often in India, I love saying it, is that, that we still live in a highly colonized world and that colonization is alive and active today. And to me, I ask them why and see if they figure it out. And often they do get it, is that I'm referring to the transnationals, the big multinational corporations. Yeah. And they're the colonizing um, entities of our era. And often with the support or the collusion or the collaboration of the governments. Hmm. And Modi is in that way. And so so there's a lot of um, concern about, you know, there's more GMOs coming into India. Um, you know, there's a lot of protesting going on with that also. But so just like so many other places, it's like it's a toss up. It's hard to say. You know, India is blessed with a very basically intact traditional culture you can find it it's not like it's easy but there's still many places that are practicing traditional systems there's still much of that still there so they they even though they have all this industrialization all this you know sort of corporate pressures and you know it is huge and this push for you know modernization and all that you still have that intact many places intact remnants and knowledge that are still there. So it's just like, what's going to happen? It's, it's hard to say it Mm. really is, you know, and I think, and we're hoping with the international gathering in permaculture, we're hoping to give that a boost, you know, try to get more of a impact in that way. But I mean, Modi, this guy, he's basically, I, not to get too complicated, but there's, you know, I don't know, uh, what, what was it? Something like 400,000 or maybe 40,000, I think 40,000 NGOs in India. Mm-hmm. And he has revoked over 50% of those or a certain number of those are able to get investment, not investment, but contributions or payment from outside India. India is very controlled monetarily in terms of money going in and out of it. Um, and foreign money being donated into India is very regulated or controlled. And you have uh, uh, organization has to have a special certificate from the government that will allow them to accept donations from outside the country. Mm-hmm. Modi has basically canceled over 50% of those. And, and the vast majority of those NGOs are social and environmental hmm. ones have basically lost their ability to get foreign donations, which is for most of those guys a life, you know, yeah, a major, it's a major impact. And that was, that was done as a sort of, of a nationalistic, like we don't need outsiders money influencing what we're doing here. Well, we can get into why is he doing it? What's going on with it? Um, it's just that Modi is not known for his social or environmental, you know, yeah. Sympathies, right. His sympathies are much more, and, I it's getting into politics in India and I, you know, if yeah, just look at can of worms. Yeah, it's a whole can of worms. And you get into with Modi, you get into the issues between Muslims and Hindus in India. And there's also because there's, you know, conflict between that. But there's also Christian Hindu conflict in terms of things happening. 
And Modi came out, and his party is known as a nationalistic party out of Gujarat. So um, just I'll just say, if you're interested, if this talk has piqued anybody who's listening to this interest, just research Modi and look at him um, if you're interested in the guy. But yeah. um, you just asked me about the future of India, and it's just sort of like with Modi, it's sort of like with Trump, you right. know, except Modi's small, smarter than Trump, so I'm a little more scared about Modi. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. So um so we've got this international permaculture conference and convergence coming up and do you want to talk a little bit about it cuz I know you're organizing sure. a lot of parts, you're teaching stuff. Tell us, you know, yeah. give, give us a little commercial here so maybe some more people show up. Great. Yeah, no, it'd be amazing. And um you know, every 2 years if, you, if people don't know, every 2 years the international permaculture community meets somewhere in the planet for our little it's called IPC for short, you know, we like our initials. Uh, International Permaculture Convergence. Um, uh, two years ago, it was in London. Two years before that, Cuba. This coming November, put on your calendars. The There's two parts to it, as you know. There's a conference, which is two to three days. In India, it'll be two days. And it's in a city, which will be Hyderabad. So it's in this, uh, the state of Telangana. It's just a new state got formed. Um, but Hyderabad's been around forever. So it's in Hyderabad, 25th and 26th of November this year. Um, that's for the conference. Then um, the following, that Saturday, Sunday, on Monday, we shift out to a farm, and I've been out there, did a course out there with um, the hosts, the people that are organizing the IPC. We did a course on the farm this past year. The farm's beautiful, nice location. They're just putting in all this stuff. It's next to a huge reservoir. If we pray for a good monsoon, a good summer rain, because then we'll have a big lake to be next to that people can jump into if they want to. Um, so, yeah, so then we move out to this farm. It's out at the farm for five days. Um, as you know, the conference will have a bunch of keynote speakers. Fandana Shiva is the big one, but there will be, you know, uh Robin Francis is talking. David Holmgren will be there via satellite again. Um, a lot of cool people, a lot of major speakers. So that's happening. Yeah, that'll be end of November, beginning of December is the convergence uh, out at the farm. Prior to that, and the part I'm organizing, I'm the, the organization that's the NGO that's organizing it is called Aranya, A R. A N Y A. Just make sure I yeah, Aranya. Yeah. A R A N Y A. And it's Aranya Agricultural Alternatives. So if you want to look up at that NGO, and I think their website is permacultureindia.org. The website for the gathering for the IPC is IPC India 2017. .org. And I believe the IPC and the I in India is capitalized. But if you web search it, you'll find it out. You'll find it. So you can get to their website and that will lay out all these details. That's where you'd register for the conference, register for the convergence like that. Now, the and they're expecting at the conference they're planning for over a thousand. It grows every every two years. It gets bigger and bigger every year. And in India, that with London, it was very expensive. It was cheap to get there, but very expensive when you got there. So a lot of people came and left. Uh, India, it'll probably be more expensive to get to because it's more sort of remote from uh, United States. How so? It'll be, however, round trip. Now you can get a round trip for just over a thousand or something, depending when you go or whatever. You know, or fourteen hundred at the most if you really shop. You can get a which round trip here to India is not too bad. That's opposite side of the planet. So um, my feeling is a lot of people will come and stay for longer because it's, it's, it's expensive to get there, but cheaper once you're there. Um, okay. Sideline. So you have the conference and the convergence prior to the conference and convergence. Traditionally, there is the uh, PDC, a design course that is taught prior to the conference. Um, and 
that's what I'm organizing. I'm I'm in charge of all the pre-conference PDC, and prior to the design course, there will be the first ever teacher training in India, where we'll actually be, and we're having a definitely a certain number of Indians are signing up. We're getting internationals also, but we'll actually certify our first Indians in you know, to be certified permaculture teachers. So mm. that's that's pretty exciting. So I'm organizing that. 22nd to the 30th of October will be the teacher training with Jude Hobbs and myself in high, uh, at this farm outside Hyderabad. And it's the, these courses are at the same venue that will host the con- convergence when it moves out to the countryside. So I will be, so that's the 22nd to the 30th. Then there's a few days off. And then the um, design course is from the 3rd of November to the 22nd. It's 20 days, which is extra long. Hmm. We are also then at, it's a whole new format. We're doing the core curriculum, you know, the 72-hour the curriculum with stuff added in. And then people who sign up for the PDC also choose one of four streams we're talking about. So basically they get a PDC plus advanced training in a particular application of PDC, of the of permaculture. The four streams, they choose one of, of the four. And the four are agriculture, um, water and earthworks, social permaculture, and then urban permaculture. So the people would get the core curriculum, plus at the end of that, they get another five days or so of permaculture within one of the streams, you know, urban permaculture, social, or it's agriculture, or earthworks and water. Hmm. So, and their certificate will will say this. They'll get the standard PDC certificate, but they'll also note on that with an emphasis or with extra training in whatever it is. So that's pretty exciting to me, the PDC. Uh, We're going to have over nine instructors for the PDC, um, there's, we, it's Robin Francis is the lead instructor and I'm the second one. Mm-hmm. And she and I both agreed that we wanted a balanced team, both gender, but also Indian to international. So we have on the nine instructors, we have three Indians, one Nepali, one Taiwanese, one Australian, three Americans. I think I might be a little too many there. Maybe we have two Indians, one Nepali. Hmm. We have five women, four men. So it's a pretty good balance. We have a very strong Asian, you know, two Indians and a Nepali, and then we have a Taiwanese. Nice. And, um, yeah, it's very nice. And so the instructors are Robin Francis, myself, Clea Chandamal, who's from India, Govinda Sharma, who's from Nepal, those four, my, Robin, myself, Clea, and Govinda, will be doing the core curriculum. Then it'll be Robin Francis and Starhawk and my brother Roshan from the Prerna. They'll be doing the social permaculture. Then myself and Gopi, who is from India, will be doing the water and earthworks. Then um, Jude and Hui from Taiwan will be doing the urban and then Clea and Govinda will be doing the agriculture. So pretty dynamic, amazing course, you know, and it'll be all these instructors. We have uh, Robina McCurdy from New Zealand, who's sort of known, a little bit known, who's coming in to assist to be there in the mix. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's, nice. that's the plug for IDC India. Wow. You get, yeah, sounds if, like quite a lineup yeah. there. Yeah, it's quite a lineup. And for us who are doing the courses, the teacher training, then this, then the conference, I'll be involved in this for like two months mm. almost from start to finish. My 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 part of it. Nice. <clears throat> well, I look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, I look forward to having you there. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, Rico, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was really, really interesting just to hear uh, some of the wisdom that you've picked up in your you know, 14 years uh, working in India and traveling abroad. And uh, it's just really fascinating to, to think about your life um, and you know all the things that you must have seen and experienced there in all your travels to all these very interesting uh, and diverse places. So thanks mm-hmm. so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I, I appreciate the opportunity.
And um, definitely have people, if you're interested in this, great to come to India. Um, check out the website, the IPC India 2017 uh, website. Um, yeah. And love to see everybody there. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Awesome. Well, hey, have a great day, Rico. Thank you, Andy. All right. Take care. Okay. Peace. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.